0: Greetings, Dr. Beckett. Welcome to the Quantum Leap Podcast.
1: Theorizing that one could time travel within his own lifetime, Dr. Sam Beckett led an elite group of scientists into the desert to develop a top-secret project known as Quantum Leap. Pressured to prove his theories or lose funding, Dr. Beckett prematurely stepped into the project accelerator and vanished. He awoke to find himself in the past, suffering from partial amnesia and facing a mirror image that was not his own. Fortunately, contact with his own time was maintained through brainwave transmissions with Al, the project observer, who appeared in the form of a hologram that only Dr. Beckett can see and hear. Trapped to the past, Dr. Beckett finds himself leaping from life to life, putting things right that once went wrong and hoping each time that his next leap will be the leap home.
2: You are listening to the Quantum Leap Podcast. This is episode 20, Animal Friend.
0: Well, I don't thank you for the greatest parties of any fraternity.
1: Yeah, it looks like a great one from the look of these guys. I'm trapped in the body of a troglodyte. I don't want to graduate in it. I want to leap out of here as soon as I can. Well, don't worry. According to Ziggy, you're in no danger of graduating this year or next year. According to Ziggy, there's an 87.6% chance you're here to help Elizabeth Spokane. Well, tomorrow, that's Saturday, Elizabeth and her group are going to plant a bomb in the chemistry building. Bomb? It goes off... At 9 p.m., there wasn't supposed to be anybody in there. You're not just some
0: big, hulking beer can. You're a lot smarter than that. And deceptively smart people need
1: to be watched. That's why I'm going to be watching you, making sure that you don't get anywhere near Elizabeth. Don't you see, if you use violence, you are as morally corrupt as the people you're fighting against. Sometimes you have to fight fire with fire. Elizabeth, violence is not going to stop this war. The only reason why you're saying this to me is because you want me to go to some party with you. You don't care about the people over there. You don't care about how many soldiers are dying. I do care. Look, I lost a brother in Vietnam, all right? So don't tell me I don't care.
2: Hello, and welcome back to the Quantum Leap Podcast. I am Albie. And I'm Heather. And today, we have a great show. We're talking about Season 2, Episode 12 of Quantum Leap. Animal Frat. It's kind of like Animal House, but on Quantum Leap. And we have a great interview with Darren... Dalton, he played Duck in this episode of Quantum Leap. It's a real treat that we got to talk to him, and that's coming up later in the show.
3: Yeah, he seems really cool. I had never seen Red Dawn or Outsiders. Sorry, probably my age, but uh, <laughs> but I-, I watched them, and I was actually kind of shocked about Red Dawn at how like dark it was. But it was really cool to see him in other roles too, and he seems like a cool guy.
2: Yeah, he was really cool. He was really nice.
3: And you even welcomed him to the dad club. Yeah,
2: he has a little son named Jack, and uh, we talked a little bit about our kids, too, so hopefully enjoy that later. Heather, first impressions on Animal Frat.
3: The show is completely different than I thought. I know in the last episode of the podcast, I kind of thought it would be a lighthearted episode. I guess I was really wrong, huh? (laughs) There were some fun parts. Yeah.
2: But the main topic was terrorism and blowing up schools.
3: Right. And it had a really good point. Fighting violence with violence is a little silly. We didn't go through that where there was huge war protests all the time. To me, it seemed silly to blow up your chemistry building to protest a war in another country. I mean, we were involved in the war, but it just seemed kind of crazy that she would blow up the chemistry building. I guess I'm not bold enough to do anything that grandiose.
2: (laughs) I'm sure we'll talk more about this later, but I think the character of Elizabeth in this episode is either not so bright or very impressionable.
3: She was trying to get attention, so...
2: There are other ways for lovely young ladies to get attention.
3: Hey, man, parent issues are like the real deal.
2: Bombs, never a good idea.
3: No, no. Still don't know what Duck's deal was. He was kind of messed up. <laughs> he had some ulterior motives and he was just blowing things up to get the girl, maybe? I don't know.
2: We'll have to talk through the motivations of Duck.
3: What did you think about this episode? Is this one of your top few? or It's one
2: I remembered, And I'm sure I saw it more than once before this week. But when I was younger, I totally dismissed the bomb and the terrorist storyline. And I was just interested in the frat party lifestyle and the fun the boys were having. And now that I watched it as an adult, and now it's 24 years later, and we just have a different perspective on violence in schools and terrorism. And it makes it, I think, less of a fun episode and more of an important moral and meaning episode.
3: I also think when you watch things at different points in your life, they mean different things to you.
2: And that definitely happened in this episode for me, but I enjoyed it both as a young teen and as an adult. So we got a lot to talk about, and I'm really excited to talk about it with you after the episode recap.
3: This is season two, episode 12, Animal Frat. Original broadcast date, January 3rd, 1990. Written by Chris Rupenthal and directed by Gilbert M. Shilton. (laughs) After nearly drowning in the Claridge Lake, Sam very nearly drowns again, this time from leaping into the middle of his host's beer-chugging session. Sam has leapt into Newt Wild Thing Wildton, the head of the Tau Kappa Beta TKB fraternity in 1967, during one of their many parties. After immediately being vomited on, Sam finds his room with two sexy ladies in his bed, and awkwardly leaves the room. The next morning, Sam is extremely frustrated because his frat mates pass the time by propelling water balloons from the chemistry classroom's window using a slingshot they made out of surgical tubing. Al arrives and compliments their handiwork, saying it was better than what he used when he was in college, and has fun reminiscing. Outside, tables have been set up with Vietnam War protesters handing out flyers. Al informs Sam that he is there to help Elizabeth Spokane a classmate of Wild Things, one of the protesters, and an unfortunate victim of the water balloon slingshot. Al informs Sam that in two nights' time, she sets off a bomb in the chemistry building as an act of protest against the war. The university supports the war effort. The building was supposed to be empty, but a student had snuck in to study and was killed in the blast. Elizabeth spends the rest of her life underground and on the run. Sam goes down to apologize to Elizabeth for the water balloon and invites her to the TKB luau the next night. By Sam's logic, Elizabeth can't set off a bomb if she's not there. Elizabeth refuses, so Sam offers to help hand out flyers and go to their rally, but is shot down by their leader, Duck, who just believes that Sam wants Elizabeth for her body. Sam rebuts, saying that if he was serious about stopping the war, Duck wouldn't be turning away anybody's help. Duck realizes Sam is right, comments that Wild Thing isn't as dumb as he looks, and that deceptively smart people like him need to have an eye kept on them, which Duck vows to do. In chemistry class, Elizabeth interrupts the lecturer and starts a debate by asking him to justify the college's stance supporting an illegal and inhumane war. The lecturer tries to brush off the question, but it is Sam who is able to diffuse the debate by saying that what is important is what the South Vietnamese want, and that America should be taking its cue from them. After class, Sam and Elizabeth have a chat. Elizabeth warms up to Sam, and she agrees to go to the luau. That is, until Scooter, a pledge for the TKB frat, arrives to show Sam that he was following the TKB initiation instructions Wild thing set, wearing his underwear on the outside of his pants and carrying hamburger meat to distract the dean's dog while he steals the dean's prized signed basketball. Disgusted by Wild Thing's abuse of Scooter, Elizabeth tries to leave, but Sam tries to reason with her, saying that men have evolved to not have to hunt anymore, but still need a way to let out their excess testosterone. Elizabeth still leaves. Al, having heard Sam, suggests that Sam take his own advice and just try to enjoy himself. Since he can't stand the childish antics of the fraternity, Sam worries that he doesn't know how to have fun. But Al says that fun is a relative term, calling Sam's situation between funs. So Sam should just go with it, and then he'll leap out and never have to do antics like that again. Back at the frat house, one of Wild Thing's friends is making a prank call to campus security about a bomb in the chemistry building. Some of the others are trying to study for a chemistry exam, but come to the conclusion that they're going to fail. Sam, however, solves a difficult problem in his head, which starts a chorus of Wild Thing, I Think I Love You, and they make a plan to just cheat off of Sam. Sam refuses, so the boys instead decide to do something stupid and pointless, flushing cherry bombs in the girls' toilets. Sam, who has never done anything like this before, because at college he was a mega-nerd, has as much fun as Al, who watches. But unfortunately, Elizabeth notices him as he escapes. At the rally, Duck makes a passionate speech about needing to make their voices heard, even if it means taking up arms against the government if they refuse to listen. Sam is the only one not impressed, and wonders what Elizabeth sees in him. Al thinks it's partly his silver tongue, and her collective guilt for being able to afford college and not have to be on the battlefield. Sam tries to convince Elizabeth that if they use violence, then they are just as guilty and advises using publicity instead, as the pen is mightier than the sword. Duck again tries to get rid of Sam, claiming that Sam doesn't care about stopping the war. This upsets Sam, who reveals that he lost a brother in Vietnam. Elizabeth now feels sorry for Sam and agrees to go to the luau with him. At the luau, Elizabeth makes a comment about Sam being right about needing to cause publicity and that the TKB boys blowing up the toilets gave them an idea. Al tells Sam that the bomb still goes off. Elizabeth must have put it on a timer. The boys also tell Sam that since he wouldn't let them cheat off of him, they sent Scooter to get the exam. Realizing that Scooter is still in danger, Sam tries to call campus security about the bomb, but they think it's another prank. So Sam and Elizabeth try to save Scooter themselves. They are followed by the frat boys having found Scooter, who chickened out of trying to get the test. In the chemistry classroom, Elizabeth shows Sam where she hid the bomb, and Al tells them how to defuse it. They are successful, but Ziggy tells Al that they are still going to die in the blast. They realize there's a second bomb. Luckily, Duck is nearby, having arrived to view his handiwork. Sam beats Duck up and stops him from leaving. Thinking he was about to die, Duck reveals the location of the second bomb. Without any time to defuse it, Sam has his fratmates build the slingshot and propel the bomb out the window, giving a bitchin' explosion in the air, and saving everyone in the building. Back at the Luau, Sam comforts Elizabeth, who is distraught from how close her actions came to killing so many people, saying she just went a little overboard, and that she shouldn't try so hard to please her parents. Al informs Sam that Elizabeth remains an active protester and her actions help stop the war. The last thing Sam has to do before leaping is to officially start the TKB luau celebrations, and at the last minute is lifted up on wires to do a dive into the pool. Al tells Sam not to mess up, as in the original history, Wild Thing broke his neck and was left paralyzed. Sam reluctantly jumps and lands in the pool safely. With a final TKB is the life for me, Sam leaps.
2: And that episode recap was from Hayden.
3: Thank you, Hayden.
2: We are officially in the 90s.
3: Yeah, this aired the day before my first birthday.
2: Wow. (laughs) Party.
3: Yeah.
2: So we don't have to awkwardly say an 80s, 90s show. We can just say 90s now. So that's cool. I remember the 90s.
3: See, I'm like an 80s, 90s baby. Mm Because technically I was born in the 80s, but... You only remember the 90s. Right.
2: Same for me. I'm an 80s kid, even though technically I was born in the 70s. I only remember the 80s.
3: I guess that kind of works for everybody. Yeah.
2: Unless you were born...
3: In the beginning of... So, half of everybody
2: or a percentage of everybody. I think we're already off topic. Yeah. But <laughs> we are in the 90s now, and we are talking about Animal Frat. I would say this is a good episode. I agree. Not a bad episode. No, not at <laughs> Not a comedy, really. It's... Kind of a drama. Oh, yeah. But it wasn't like intense and nobody really got killed or hurt. So thankfully, yeah, we didn't have a situation like we did in So Help Me God where it was really horrible. The potential was there to be horrible because originally a student was in the building when it got blown up. Who do you think that student was?
3: I was either thinking Scooter didn't chicken out without Sam as Wild Thing kind of talking to him earlier. But then it could have been Duck who didn't get out of the building.
2: Yeah, I was thinking both things because Scooter was originally going to sneak in and get the answers for the test. Or was he? Because, well, Wild Thing couldn't have have,
3: been smart enough.
2: Right. So somebody would have had to sneak in there. So it could have been Wild Thing himself.
3: Oh, that's true.
2: But at the end of the episode, when Duck, what the Duck was he doing in (laughs) the chemistry building three minutes before the bomb was going to explode? What was he doing in there?
3: I don't know.
2: I wish I had thought of that before I talked to Darren Dalton, because I would have asked him.
3: Yeah, what were you thinking?
2: <laughs> it makes sense story-wise and constructing it for him to be there at the end so they could have a little tussle. So Sam could find out where the second bomb was. Right. But if he was there in the top floor of the building, three minutes before the bomb was going to explode, I think he might have been in there. To maybe sacrifice himself, martyr himself for the cause.
3: Yeah, like I said earlier, he's got some issues. Yeah. He's a dark guy.
2: But why would he do that? Maybe because he was upset that Elizabeth was getting with Wild Thing. But in the original timeline, Wild Thing wouldn't have gotten with Elizabeth at all. So who was in the building? It's so confusing to me. So I want to talk about this. Give me all your thoughts on the possibilities of what it could be.
3: Well... Al said it was a student studying, which doesn't mean anything because if they found a student, they would just assume that they were studying. So that doesn't really give us any clues at all. I originally thought that it was Scooter in the building. But then once we found Duck, I figured it could have been him. And if they found him, they could have thought that he was studying or they could have known that he was one of the people who planted the bomb because she was on the run. And so obviously they suspected her involvement. But would he have planted a second bomb still because he was doubting her? But he was doubting her because of Wild Thing and Sam. So would he have still doubted her and still planted the second bomb?
2: The thing is, Al would have known who died originally because he's got his hand link. He knows, but he just didn't think he should tell Sam. Do you think the writers left it intentionally ambiguous?
3: Yes. For someday a podcast (laughs) to sit here and (laughs) try and figure it out.
2: No, I don't think as much as that, because say Al said Scooter dies in the building tonight. He's not going to stick with Elizabeth. He's going to stick with Scooter. Right. Not as interesting a story, maybe.
3: It became not an important fact. It became like a detail.
2: But then at one point, Al said it was Scooter, or it was implied that it was Scooter. And then when Scooter came into the party at the end, Al should have told Sam that Scooter's here. So it- wasn't Scooter
3: my whole thing was remember in the last episode where Al was like Ziggy center me on Sam and he'd leap to right where Sam was why is there that whole Sam like chasing scene where he's trying to tell Sam that Scooter's at the party why didn't he just center himself on Sam and say hey don't go there
2: that was definitely an incontinuity with the rest of the series And I think it was obvious to us just because how many times we watch each episode.
3: But also it was just in the last episode. It was like a few episodes ago. Right. (laughs) But it was just in the last episode that he could do that. I was like, center yourself on Sam. Do it. Go.
2: (laughs) And he had time, too, because Sam's running to the chemistry building from the party.
3: And what is Al doing running in as a hologram like in in
2: the imaging chamber? It just didn't make sense. That's one of the things like when you give a character in a show a certain ability, then you have to figure out why he can't use that ability, because if you have a way to get out of a situation, it's like in uh, current movies. Every new movie that comes out, there's always a scene. Oh, my cell phone doesn't work here.
3: Or like the battery just died on my cell phone. Something like that. Because
2: now with the advent of the cell phone, pretty much most people are in communication all the time. So they can't really be stuck in a certain situation.
3: But you always know something bad's going to happen when the cell phone stops working.
2: (laughs) Right. Exactly. So they didn't give us a reason why he didn't center him on Sam. When Al finally started talking to Sam while they were in the chemistry building, messing with the locker, Al told Sam about Scooter being back at the party. Sam said someone could still come in the building, but Al would know if somebody still got killed and somebody was in the building.
3: Maybe it was just too high of a stress moment for him to check the current, I don't know. Okay. But my whole thing about the ability of Al to center himself on Sam, I found that the rules are still not concrete for a lot of things in the show. Not that that's a bad thing because it leaves a lot to imagination and most people wouldn't be sitting here dissecting the show like we do. But I feel like a lot of times there aren't the same rules in each episode. So I don't know how that works, but I just think it was, you know, a high stress moment and it made it more stressful that he couldn't tell him about Scooter right away.
2: I see what you're saying. And I understand like if you're in that situation where a bomb's going to explode in less than 10 minutes, you're trying to do everything you can to stop it from happening. So I can understand why there was some confusion. But uh, I guess we're both glad that Al didn't center himself on Sam because then he would just be like, oh, okay, then we're done. Let's go back to the party.
3: Yeah, it kind of wouldn't be very climactic.
2: The bomb would still destroy property, but no one would be killed. Except Duck, maybe. Maybe. (laughs) It's confusing. Yeah.
3: I know you had said something about the cutting of the wires in the locker.
2: Oh, yeah. In the scene, Al tells Sam to get two pairs of scissors from the chemistry lab so both Sam and Elizabeth can cut the wires together, basically simultaneously. Now, in some bomb-diffusing scenes we've seen, you have to cut two wires at the same time or it doesn't work. But this was in a certain order. They have to cut it in a sequence, white, red, blue, and orange, within five seconds. The Within five seconds, they just barely make, in real time. I had my stopwatch out in this episode. (laughs) White, red, blue, orange... Sam could have done white, red, blue, orange in the time that it took. There was no need for two scissors. So the two scissors was a smart idea because both of them would need to be near the bomb as it was ticking down. But the misstep, let's say, was they didn't have to cut the wire simultaneously.
3: Maybe it was a backup. I don't know. That's weird.
2: But what I'm saying is there was no need for two people to do it. Right. Because it was like, okay, I did my two or three. Now it's your turn. Yeah. So you didn't even need two scissors. Yeah, it's weird. But again, that might not be a failing of the story or the writing. It might just be Al having fun with them. Yeah, that's true. Or just taking it to the extreme. Speaking of the stopwatch on my iPhone coming out during this episode, Al says the bomb's going to explode in four minutes and 37 seconds. I timed it. The whole thing took three minutes and 34 seconds, which is okay because, of course, it's shortened for time. The episode's not real time. It's not 24. But at least it wasn't longer than what Al had
3: said. That's not that bad, 30 seconds off. It would have been bad if it was like a couple minutes off or something.
2: Well, being off is fine as long as it's under.
3: Right. Right. If it was like six minutes. Right. It would be bad. My favorite weird part of this episode, if that makes sense, is the leap in. Okay. He leaps in to a beer chugging session, like we called it in the recap. But he gets up because he says he has to go to the bathroom. And the people that are holding the keg are still like, chug, chug, chug to nothing. And and pouring the beer And still pouring the beer.
2: Yeah, it's like the director told them. (laughs) To keep going. (laughs) Or just didn't give them the full direction. Just say, okay, this is what you do. You hold it and you say chug. But he didn't say, okay, after Scott gets up, then you don't have to do that anymore.
3: Well, like, if you were pouring beer on someone's face and they got up, you would be like, where are you going? Or you would stop Or you'd be like, yeah, wild thing, see you later, something. Not just stay in this weird, shaky, I don't know, it's just weird. The only
2: (laughs) in-universe explanation I could come up with was it was 1967, so who knows what they were on.
3: (laughs) You're right. (laughs) We're like, chug pool table, chug, chug. (laughs) Or maybe they're just a little delayed. Whatever drug they're on, they think you still (laughs) air. Yeah, it's possible. But that was really weird. And every time the episode opens, I laugh at that part because I'm like, they're just sitting there chugging beer. It's
2: just odd. Speaking of the opening, they do an opening narration about saving his sister from an abusive husband, Kamikaze Kid. So apparently Kamikaze Kid aired between... So, see, it wasn't last week when they established that Al could be centered on Sam. It might have been two weeks before. I guess so. Just seems like a lot to go through for a repeat in the middle.
3: When I watch repeats on TV, I don't remember there being like a preview for the repeat at the end of the episode.
2: (laughs) This is a unique situation, I guess.
3: It's weird. Yeah. I know we've talked about it, but it's just, I, this is the first time I've actually like seen it come into to play with last week ending with Kamikaze Kid and this week beginning with Kamikaze Kid.
2: Oh, we should have watched Kamikaze Kid in between. No. <laughs> no. J- just in case he did something different this time.
3: <laughs> Maybe the outcome was
2: different. <laughs> I hope not. I think it was a good outcome this time <laughs> or last time. If you think that's weird, wait till you see where he leaps after another mother.
3: Oh, wonderful.
2: <laughs> Sam didn't seem like he was in a fraternity in his own college days.
3: He was a mega nerd. Mega nerd. There's that word again. Yeah, I like that word.
2: Yeah. Mega nerd. He, he was very smart. He, he was young in college.
3: Yeah, I think that that has something to do with it, too, because I feel like the the more I hear about younger kids going to college, the better they do or older generations like going to college, the better they do. It's like something about that age between like 18 and 24. I want to say alcohol. Probably has a <laughs> lot to do with it. But I mean, I think that that's like this age where you're like, I'm becoming an adult and I can do whatever I want. And I don't need to do my homework if I don't want to do my homework. I don't live at home anymore and I can party all I want. Well, when you're 16, you don't only really think like that. And also, if you're like 30 going to school, you don't think like that either. You're like, yeah, I'm an adult. And it is it is what it is.
2: <laughs> well, I'm sure when you're younger, you really don't fit into that crowd. So you're not going to be distracted. All you have is your studies. Right. Until everybody starts going to college earlier, then they'll all be in the same crowd. And then there you go again.
3: I don't know. I See, I didn't have that. I went to a community college and I lived at home. So
2: I wasn't in a fraternity. The closest thing I ever got to was when I was in my earlier food service days. I rented a house and I had at one time, I think up to eight roommates and it was a constant party all the time. There was Coca-Cola soda can machine that was just filled with different kind of beers. People were renting rooms, renting couches. I had one guy who rented a shelf over the hallway. Um, there was a couch on top of the beer machine and some guy rented that. So I, I lived that lifestyle. It just wasn't in college at the time.
3: That's crazy. It
2: was fun. I couldn't imagine doing it now.
3: I live a very boring life and I never had that, but I'm okay with that. This some not something that I regret. <laughs> <laughs> I think that I, I think I'm the oldest of my family and I think that that has a, a lot to do with it. Do you think that has it like that matters? Because you're the youngest. So you're like, yeah, whatever. I can do whatever I want.
2: I just think at that time in my life, I was having fun and I did have a lot of fun. I'm sure. So what did you think of the frat house lifestyle portrayed in this episode?
3: It needed like a vacuum. <laughs> <laughs> some windex and,
2: and it was a little dirty for you
3: yeah it was bad like i, I feel like it would smell oh like, really bad. like beer like puke
2: rotten beer puke
3: definitely and, puke. like rotting food and smelly socks like i feel like that's <laughs> what a frat house <laughs> smells like
2: i'm glad we didn't watch it in smell a vision yet
3: <laughs> for real but like that i when i watched that episode that's all i was thinking of was i bet you that smells so bad <laughs> Like just like old stale beer smell and yeah puke and you know I have to say that wild thing was a stud that the two what, was they twins in his bed they look like
2: twins uh, we looked them up they had the same last name so they're they're at least sisters hmm. but uh, a couple of people said they were twins I think they're twins
3: Sam was a little uh, taken aback by that. Yeah,
2: he he was okay with one woman in his bed because I guess that's normal at this point. You know, hey, this is my girlfriend now or wife or whoever. Uh, but when there was twins, he was like, okay, I'm putting my pants on. I'm out of here.
3: Would you have done that?
2: No, I, w- <laughs> I would have uh, probably done a little... Differently? Yes. <clears throat> <laughs> I probably would have done it a little bit differently because I think there was room in that bed for one more. <laughs> But you know, uh, that's why the show is not about me. That's why the show is about Doctor Sam Beckett.
3: Right. But the, I have the the shot with the mirror though was really good.
2: The mirror gag in this episode was really, really good. I mean, there was a slight mismatch, but very little. And they even got the sways and the breaths and the arm movements all down. And the background in the mirror was reversed, and it was, it was really good.
3: Considering it was two different people, they did good. And and we have been judging them on their mirror shots this whole time so they this one was a good one very good kudos guys
2: so thanks to scott bacula and jeff benson they did a great job on that and when they do a real good mirror gag it takes me out a little bit because i'm like oh wow that's so good but it also doesn't take me out of the episode saying yeah they kind of messed that one up
3: right i always think back to the pilot with the baseball one how bad that was so <laughs> we've come a really long way
2: yeah it's getting better all the time yeah in Sam's voiceover, he mentions his name's Newt with a K, not with an N, so he's a king. I have no idea who a King Newt is.
3: Well, I, I Googled it, and okay. I think it's technically with a C, which is kind of weird because he says K. But a Newt with a K is a polar bear, so I don't know what he was talking about. But the King Newt with the C says it could also be with a K. Well, there was three that come up on Wikipedia. Okay, so it looks like he was the king of England, Denmark, and Norway, which is the Anglo-Scandinavian section, or the North Sea Empire, from 1016 to 1035.
2: Okay, so it was a king. Yes. Not a salamander.
3: But he was also called, like, Canute, like C-A-N-U-T, so I don't know.
2: I don't know much about him. We have a PG rating here. We don't want to get into those (laughs) kind of words. (laughs) I noticed in this episode that uh, Al didn't even walk through a door or there wasn't even a sound effect. He was just hanging out with Sam when we cut to the Sam and Al team.
3: I think we know by now what's going on. We know he's a hologram and all that junk, right?
2: Al's shirt was green on the inside and blue on the outside. And I don't mean the material. I mean, when he was inside the building, it looked green. When he was outside, it looked blue.
3: It was almost like teal, but then outside it was definitely not teal. It was blue. So I don't know if it was a different shirt. I don't know. It was weird.
2: Might be a futuristic fabric from the future that reacts differently to the sun rays like those bags you get in Mexico.
3: Oh, yeah, maybe. Could be. His collar had crazy cutout. It was like not a Swiss cheese tie. It was like a boxy Swiss cheese collar.
2: He is getting less and less collar. I'm thinking eventually he'll just have like the collar edge. Yeah, the outline. (laughs) So we'll see. But uh, pretty cool fashion in this episode. Yeah, well, always. Except for Sam. I don't blame him because he just leaped into this life. But every time we see him, he's wearing a different jersey with a different number on it.
3: That's because there's different teams and different players that you get jerseys from.
2: Oh, they weren't his jerseys?
3: Most likely not. I'm sure some of them were, but none of them said wild thing on them.
2: No, they were just like random numbers. I tried to make sense of those numbers and I couldn't.
3: I think that for the wardrobe department, I think they just put different jerseys on him to show that he was a sports fan. But like if you buy a Cowboys jersey and has your favorite player number on it. And then you have like a Jets jersey. It's going to be a different number than the Cowboys jersey. You're talking a different language to me. You don't know what I'm talking... You are a big fat liar. (laughs) Like sports jerseys. Yes, but what I'm saying is if it's a different team, it's not going to be the same number. Okay. Like you're not going to pick... Well, I, I guess you could pick number 13 on every...
2: Some of the other frat boys had similar shirts to him with their number on it. So I was just a little confused.
3: I have to say, though, he did look good in his... Varsity jacket, college outfit thing he had going on with his like Chuck Taylors and wavy hair. It was looking pretty fine in this episode. <laughs> hmm.
2: <laughs> his jacket should have his number on it, right? Which was different from the jerseys. Yes. So we'll go with that being his number. And that number was 66. Yes. So that's his number. So the 77, the 51, the 53, somebody else's numbers. Right. Right. Maybe the guys in a fraternity just share clothes. You know, I'm feeling a little bit fat today. Can I wear your jersey? Is that how guys talk to each other? I don't know. I've never been in a fraternity, like I said.
3: Well, that's like the girls sorority. Well, I don't think it was a sorority. I think it was just dorms. But it was like the chick who was staying there with her shirt off. Girls aren't like that. They don't just go, I'm just going to get naked in front of you. Well, I have
2: to mention that they did a good job in this episode when they were, the guys were trying to blow up the women's bathroom. As the guys were running out, typically in a movie TV show, women would come out in their lingerie and nighties and bras and things that they would never wear in real life. They would wear what was in this episode, which was just, you know, normal pajamas. Right. And uh, maybe that has to do with Deborah Pratt being one of the producers. And maybe she said, no, 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 this is the way it would be. Girls don't
3: hang out in their bras and underwear. Let's make it realistic. They're
2: not pillow fighting and all that stuff. It's not it's not grease. (laughs) <laughs>
3: yes, the movie, not the, the country. Right,
2: the movie. Um, <laughs> but I, I, when I saw that, I was like, eh, this is probably Deborah Pratt's influence. Just a guess, I have no idea.
3: Yeah, probably. Speaking of that whole prank, the guys are hiding in the hallway and the girls walk by talking. There's no way that they didn't see them.
2: No way. You would definitely see someone three feet away from you crouching. Your peripheral vision, unless they were both had some kind of vision problem, which I'm not saying they didn't or if there's anything wrong with that. But when you walk down a hallway you can see if there's somebody down another hallway adjacent to you
3: right and they were wearing like all black clothing in like a light painted hallway and they're not being quiet right there's no way
2: (laughs) only on tv can you not see someone in your peripheral vision
3: yeah well i mean they couldn't have gotten caught so it served the story and it worked
2: it did work. And you, you, those kind of things you have to let slide because if they did get caught, then they wouldn't have the bomb scene and they wouldn't have a later bomb. Right. Speaking of that, do you think that Sam going along and Al helping with the fuses and everything contributed to the idea of them having the bomb? Or do you think that maybe Duck was thinking a bomb all along and it just, she just happened to think that's why they did it?
3: Well, there was a bomb in the first timeline. Right. Right. But they could have done the cherry bombs in the first timeline, too. Probably, because uh, they were going to do
2: it anyway. I'm sure it wasn't Sam's idea.
3: Well, they did it because they knew they were going to fail their chemistry exam, which they were going to do that anyway. So I don't think it was Sam's fault. Let's put it that way. Okay. Well, Duck had spoken about raising arms against the government to, you know, violence against violence. Yay. So maybe he was planting a bomb the whole time.
2: I'm thinking because if he was going to be in the building when the bomb went off, it wasn't a spur of the moment decision. Maybe he was planning this.
3: Yeah, I still don't understand that. Poor duck. Yeah, poor Scooter.
2: Poor Scooter, man. They abused him the whole episode. Well, Sam didn't. Sam was cool with him because maybe Sam saw a little bit of himself in Scooter when he was in college.
3: Very true. But yeah, the poor guy. I don't think wearing my underwear on the outside of my pants is worth joining a fraternity or any of the other stuff he did.
2: Speaking of, does he wear boxers or briefs?
3: Well, I think briefs are more embarrassing to wear on the outside of your pants. Okay. But boxers are really what he wore.
2: Right. Which we saw when the dog took a chunk out of his butt. Right. You know how we usually do those things that uh, are kind of a little bit amusing that we kind of go along with the episode that we're doing? I think we were haunted last episode, let's say. We were on a train one episode. Yeah. I didn't think this one out too much because I'm actually wearing a pair of underwear on the outside of my pants. (laughs) But it doesn't translate to the audio.
3: No. Okay. No, only I get the privilege of seeing that.
2: You didn't notice that
3: before. Or... I didn't want to say anything because okay. I didn't know if you were sensitive about I'm, that. I'm a little strange sometimes. A little bit.
2: Was that a real hot dog on his hat, or did they have just hot dog hats back then?
3: What was that? <laughs> I have I no know. idea. I have no idea. Is that like a punishment he had to wear that? Well, yeah, hot I guess hat?
2: back then the more embarrassing the hazing, the better.
3: Was that like hot dog vendors wore hot dog hats? I don't know. I'm
2: not sure. Was his name really Scooter or were they just giving him a stupid nickname?
3: I don't know. Um,
2: This brings up another topic. Back then in 1990, January 3rd, when it aired, hazing and pledging fraternities wasn't a big topic like it is maybe nowadays, where now a lot of colleges don't even allow that to happen because a lot of people have gotten killed and uh, died due to stupid people making other stupid people do stupid things.
3: There's lots of stupid in that.
2: Not to be judgy, but I mean, if you're going to make somebody accidentally kill themselves.
3: I've seen a lot of like CSI and crime shows about hazing and stuff.
2: Right. I don't know actual things happened. I just know ripped from the headlines TV shows. So something must have happened in there.
3: It just doesn't make sense to me, but I don't have that kind of mentality. But I've seen a lot of shows on hazing and I know that it's very much frowned upon now, but I've seen shows that kind of show that it's, yeah, they frown upon it, but now they just do it more secretly.
2: Or they uh, use different words to describe it. Right. But again, that's something that wasn't even a topic in this episode because that wasn't even thought of as a bad thing. It was just tradition back then.
3: But also, I think that TV plays up a lot of it for like the dramatic because I know that I had a totally different view of high school. And when I went to high school, I was like, this is really boring. It wasn't anything like... TV had portrayed high school as being.
2: I think a lot of us had that feeling when we got to high school.
3: Yeah, we were like, wow, this isn't as... This isn't
2: 90210.
3: No, or anything that ever was on TV about high school. I don't. Maybe I went to the wrong high school. I don't know.
2: A duck is a duck is a duck. Is a duck. Why was he named Duck? Duck! Oh, probably because he was <laughs> planting bombs, right? <laughs> he was throwing grenades from uh, World War Three in Red Dawn. <laughs> There's a lot of strange things in this episode, Um, but I think one of the main topics was Vietnam. So this is something that's come up again because in an earlier episode, I think it was Disco Inferno, we learned that Sam lost a brother in Vietnam. And in this episode, we learn again if we miss that episode or they reiterate it anyway. That Sam did lose a brother in Vietnam because in the scene in the library, Sam says, I did lose a brother in Vietnam. So he was being serious. Now, it's good that Elizabeth or Duck didn't look that up because Newt probably didn't lose a brother in Vietnam. There was no Google back then. (laughs) I guess they could make phone calls or something.
3: They can't look in the encyclopedia to find out current information.
2: Encyclopedia Britannica. Center me on Sam.
3: I guess it helps that they didn't know much
2: about Newt. Which is understandable because it looked like they were from two disparate worlds.
3: What a weird way to say that. Because disparate is very similar to desperate for me. And those are totally different meanings of words.
2: So, uh, Quantum Leap, we get to learn vocabulary words.
3: Yes. And the families that were mentioned, I believe, are the families of Romeo and Juliet.
2: The Montagues and the Capulets?
3: Yes. I believe that's...
2: That was Romeo and Juliet. You had to look that one up for me because I didn't know that one. Speaking of the library, just a weird thing that hit me. I don't think it has anything to do with the world of Quantum Leap, but libraries in general. Every library you see back then, I don't know now because I really don't go to libraries because I have the nook. There was a white sticker on the spine of every book with the Dewey Decimal number on it. Right. Why didn't book manufacturers just put the Dewey Decimal number on the spine of the book? Because as I understand the Dewey Decimal system, because I still learned it back in school. I did too. It's going to be the same no matter where you put it in a Dewey Decimal system, correct? I don't remember,
3: but I believe you're right.
2: If not, it should have been. I noticed in this episode that Elizabeth didn't really have too many opinions of her own. She was just restating what Duck had previously said. And I didn't notice that until I just listened to the audio of this show. I do that at least once a episode. I'll listen to the episode at work through my iPhone on Netflix.
3: That's a little obsessive.
2: Well, when you just listen to a show, you hear things that you might not otherwise because your brain is concentrating on the visual.
3: Hmm. You have a good point there. I'm committed. You should be committed. Okay. This might just be me being crazy, but have you seen the movie She's All That? Yes. Freddie Prinze Jr., Rachel Lee Cook. Right. It's a great movie. It was one of those movies that portrayed high school. Totally not how high school is. <laughs> anyway um
2: (laughs) high school is much better in movies
3: right especially i guess if you're in california but anyway i would like to say that this episode is like that movie in what way well to me that's what this whole episode was kind of sorta like the same theme you get the jock popular dude and he makes a bet that he can take this girl to a party luau prom and he tries to convince her that he's not a bad dude and they need to hang out and she needs to come to the party. And then he ends up falling for her and she ends up falling for him and yada, yada, yada. It's very much like she's all that.
2: I thought in my first reviewing of this, that's what was going to happen because I remember the episode, but not too much detail. So I thought it was going to be the whole setup where they make a bet and then the bet gets found out and then they're mad. But luckily it didn't go that way.
3: Right. It was like that, but without the drama part.
2: Right. And not the part that everybody's seen a bunch of times. Because this episode, I haven't really seen this story from this episode anywhere else before or since.
3: Right. I I agree. But I liked the fact that it was like She's All That. Now, I have to say that She's All That is probably after this episode. So... A little bit. Can't be like She's All That because it aired first. But that was a very good thing about this episode. I really like in that sense that Sam had to win over a girl, basically, to get her to not bomb the building. But he ended up kind of liking her because in the scene where he brings up the Montagues and the Capulets, you could tell that they have a similar mindset that they were more similar than she thought they were because he wasn't Wild Thing.
2: Right. Sam and Elizabeth had more in common than Newton and Elizabeth did.
3: Right. Makes sense. So she was surprised, I think, also. And then once he mentioned that his brother was lost in the war, I think that she softened up a little bit right then. And you could tell at the end that she really did need Sam to comfort her because she was so distraught over what could have happened. Can you imagine what she felt in the first timeline when she really did kill someone with that bomb? I mean, she seems like a really nice person. She just was misled.
2: And like I talked about in the opening of the show, I really think that she was either not all there or just highly impressionable.
3: Well, I can understand parental issues. But I mean, if your parents ignore you and you just want to do something to get them to notice you, obviously she's smart. Obviously, she does great in school. She's in college. That's not getting them to notice her. So she has to do something. And that's when people turn to bad things. When your parents don't notice you when you're doing good things, you do bad things and then they notice you. And even if it's to yell at you or tell you how horrible you are, they're at least paying attention to you. I can totally understand her motivation. It sucks that she had to get that way. But I, I think that was her real motivation. I don't think that she had any like mental issues or anything like that. Like, I think she was a good person. She just had bad motivations.
2: My take on Elizabeth, played beautifully by Stacy Edwards, was that she was, yes, intelligent, but I want to say naive And uh, one of the main things that lead me to think that is, what is the first rule of bomb club?
3: Nobody talks about bomb club?
2: Don't talk about bomb club. Oh, okay. So what did she do? She was like, yeah, I got a bomb over there and it's pretty cool and it's going to explode soon. You don't tell people you just planted a bomb. One, because you don't want to go to jail for it. Two, you don't want him to run with his holographic partner and disable the bomb.
3: Well, it's a good thing she didn't.
2: Yes. Again, it served the story. (laughs) Right. But again,
3: smart girl, just not. I also think that you're right about her being naive because you could tell after it all happened, she regretted it all because she didn't think ahead of time how big of a deal it really was. You're trying to show these people how bad it is in Vietnam. So you're going to bomb a building.
2: Makes no sense to me. Right. Maybe it's because I'm from a different time, but it just doesn't make sense.
3: I don't think violence against violence ever works. No. uh, It's just like a power struggle. Two
2: wrongs don't make a right. Right. Three lefts make a right. (laughs) But two wrongs do not make a right.
3: I agree. So violence doesn't solve violence.
2: So what moral or message can we take away from this episode?
3: The pen is mightier than the sword.
2: Okay, that's a good one.
3: I definitely think uh, words are more powerful than actions.
2: Right. And of course, violence is bad in any form.
3: Right. And you can't fight violence with violence.
2: Violence doesn't solve anything. And uh, maybe think about all the consequences of your actions before you do them.
3: Don't bomb the chemistry building.
2: That's another thing. anywhere. (laughs) She was asking her chemistry teacher about the Vietnam War. Probably should have been in some type of political or social studies class.
3: They only had one building in this school. I'm thinking, no,
2: (laughs) honestly, I'm thinking, well, you want one of the frat boys to use the helium. And also the bomb is in the chemistry building, so you have only have one set because they only have one classroom, as I can remember. They had the like meeting hall where Duck gave his speech and that and the chemistry lab, and that, that was the two sets. So if there was, uh, say, another, they would have had to redress a set or else have another set. Yeah. So I think that's the only reason that the political discussion took place in the chemistry lab.
3: I also don't think that the teachers have the same view as the school. Like, right. if your school... If your job place has a political view, that doesn't mean that that's your political view. So I really don't think she should have been addressing the teacher. I think she should have been addressing the school board or the head of the school, the dean, maybe this dean that we keep hearing about should have been addressing the dean, not the chemistry teacher, because the chemistry teacher has no I mean, he might agree with the school's point of view, but he seemed to just brush off the question like I'm not getting in the middle of this one. You know what I mean?
2: The professor is played by Edward Edwards. Oh, that's almost like Phil Phillips. That's what I was thinking when I read that. Um, was he related to Stacy Edwards, I think?
3: Well, there's no relation that I can find. And he's also not the same guy as the serial killer.
2: Hope. <laughs> when you Google it, huh? Yeah.
3: Okay, so I spotted a lot of bad ADR in this episode.
2: I love the fact that you know what that is.
3: I might not know what it stands for, but I know what it is.
2: Additional dialogue recording.
3: Well, anyway... The basketball scene, he gets the basketball from Scooter and he's walking with Al talking about how he's between funds. But like the first sentence he says in that scene, totally not what he really says.
2: Yeah, it was really bad.
3: He said, what am I doing here? And it's not what his mouth said.
2: Well, we've seen things like that before, like with Karen in Thou Shalt Not when they're sitting around the dinner table. And it's pretty much a full shot of her speaking and saying something totally different than her lips say.
3: Yeah, this one, it was not so bad because he was looking at Al. So it's not like a full-on shot of his lips not moving right. But you could still tell. Like, I totally knew the first time I watched it, it was not right.
2: Small TVs, not multiple viewings, probably was fine. Nowadays, I don't think they could get away with that.
3: There was also the guy with the construction hat with the fish and grass skirt on. (laughs) Oh, at the party. Yeah. Yeah.
2: Yeah, I don't even think that was his voice. A lot of times they do that where they'll have a background actor look like he's saying something, but he's not. And then later on, they'll loop it in with another actor. And the reason they do that sometimes is a cost saving measure because you don't have to pay background actors as much as the actors that actually have dialogue. And you don't have to pay people who do looping later on as much as you would the actors. So sometimes that's a cost-saving measure. It could have just been they didn't get the audio
3: at the time, but... Or maybe he said something stupid and they had to redo it. <laughs> like across the bay in Alameda. Or like in the Jimmy episode where he pronounced it wrong. Remember he said the homes... Oh, name?
2: bayside and wayside. Yeah. <laughs> I have to say, uh, I enjoyed the panny part of this episode in high definition.
3: I'm sure you enjoy every (laughs) panty episode ever.
2: I don't think they were intending people to watch it on 50, 60 inch screens. Probably not. But, uh, you know, there are little things you see that you enjoy.
3: Okay, so I've been waiting to ask you this, but I'm very confused at the fact that Sam was lifted up on like a wire or something and then he dove into the pool. How do you do that? How do you get lifted up by a wire and then successfully dive into the pool without unhooking yourself and falling?
2: I think the real question here is, how did Sam not know he was hooked up to a wire harness? (laughs) This has come up before in um, Disco Inferno. Sam leaped into a discotheque and he was, you know, doing his John Travolta impression best he could. And, uh, you know, he walked about 10, 15 feet and then got yanked on a ratchet chain harness through a window. He didn't know he had a harness on In this episode, the guys drag him upstairs and change him into a luau king outfit. With a harness on. And he had no idea. You have to step through a harness and it has to be buckled and then has to be secured.
3: How did he not? What do you mean he didn't know?
2: Apparently he didn't know because he was like, whoa, what's going on? When he got lifted up. Oh, yeah. So he He suffers from a rare disease (laughs) where everything else in your life is normal, except you can't tell when you are wearing a harness.
3: But how do you dive into a pool with a harness on? I think he got to another
2: level, like a second story in that area. I think it was around the staircase. So I think he was up on the second level and then they unhooked him and then he jumped.
3: Because it looked like he was floating in midair and dove. And I was like, I don't know how you do that. I, I think <laughs> I think he
2: was standing on the second story. Oh, okay. But the what I wrote down in my notes, I don't know if you noticed, uh, bead curtain. They had like these beads, these shells hanging down on the wall. Mm-hmm. And that was to cover the fact that he had wires. Because if you saw the wires 2 minutes before they lifted him up, you would know it was coming. This way there was wires down the wall for that bead curtain, so you didn't know the wires were there until they started to pull him up.
3: But why did he get pulled up? Why not just jump in the pool? I don't like that whole part to me. Like took me out of the episode and I was like, "Why?" Like I just don't understand.
2: But the lobster with the candle stuck in its back floating around in the kiddie pool was you didn't even think about that. Oh, that's normal. But yeah, lift it up on wires before you dive, not so normal.
3: I totally didn't see a lobster with a candle in its back.
2: I was worried that he would hit the lobster when he jumped in the pool.
3: Yeah, that was weird. That whole thing to me. Like that scene, I understand why he did it. It was one of those extra things. You know, we we talk about how he has this main purpose in his leaping and then there's like that one Peggy Suey moment where he's got to do that one little thing, but it was just weird. That
2: could have been a Peggy Suey moment. I think since, I don't know if you noticed, but the credits in this episode are so long. It's ridiculous.
3: They're so long that even Netflix plays part of them.
2: Right. That's how long they are <laughs> because Netflix thinks credits couldn't possibly that be that long for a television show. I was like, it's really going on. They're really playing the whole Wild Thing song. So I think the episode ran short and this might have been a tag on.
3: Maybe there was some kind of footage they couldn't use. And they just said, hey, we'll go with that luau scene. And this
2: brings up another thing in this episode. Will, played by Raphael Sparge, he has a very strong southern accent until the end of the episode where he is holding up that lobster, putting it in the pool, introducing the king of the luau. You think he maybe lost the accent, didn't remember that he had an accent, or maybe when he was being all official, he spoke CNN English. (laughs) I don't know. I think there was a mini lesson that we learned in this episode also, and that was about diving headfirst into shallow water. I know it's not probably as big a deal as it was a few years back, but I remember that was a PSA that was going around, a public service announcement that, you know, you could get paralyzed by diving headfirst into either shallow or unknown waters.
3: Seriously? There was a PSA about that? I just know that it's like on the pools now.
2: Right. I guess they didn't think of stickers back then or or signs. I don't know.
3: There's like a picture of like a guy hitting his head on the bottom.
2: Well, now they have that. (laughs) A long time ago, they didn't have that.
3: Well, somebody had to do
2: it first. Right. Uh, Everybody at first assumes everyone has common sense, but then when they realize people don't, then they have to put a sign up. Here's your sign. (laughs) One thing I noticed in this episode, because... I like to look up numbers whenever they're used because I figure a writer has to come up with numbers. So they might mean something. The combination lock in this episode, it was right 28, left 7, right 19. So I just looked up 28, 7, 19 to see what came up. I didn't know if it was maybe somebody's birthday or a historical event that might have to do with the story. The first thing that came up was a Bible verse. It's a very popular Bible verse, I guess. And it's in the book of Samuel. So maybe... That was something. And it was uh, about setting a trap and maybe being caught in the trap. So,
4: hmm, hmm,
3: hmm, Google. That's pretty cool. Yeah. Google is an amazing thing.
2: <laughs> Otherwise, I would have been racking my brain for a while going, what is that combination? Those uh, single dial combination locks, I'm actually really good at cracking them. A little talent I have and I had developed when I was a teenager.
3: I have a combination lock at work because... I would always put my key in my locker. (laughs) And there's so many people at work that do that. And I'm like, just get the combination. Yeah, but I'll never remember the combination. I'm like, but right now you don't remember your key. So either way, (laughs) we had combination locks in middle school, but I've never actually tried to crack one.
2: Many of you don't know this, but as a teenager, I was a magician. I actually did shows, got paid to go places and
3: do magic. I'm sure this doesn't shock anybody.
2: (laughs) I've always been like, hey, look at me. But you know a little that. bit, a little bit. Part of being into magic is learning card tricks and learning escapes and all kinds of things. And I just happen to learn how to crack combination locks. It's not hard when you realize how they work.
3: You're so, like Gus and Psych, we like knows how to. A little bit.
2: Yeah, I, I actually subscribed to that magazine that he did.
3: See, there you go. Okay, so you know how everything that Sam does affects the future a little bit. We got a little glimpse into that. Well, Newt breaking his neck. In front of all these people and paralyzing himself probably taught them all a lesson or two, right? Like don't dive into shallow waters. I almost want to see the before timeline (laughs) to see like what happened and what now happens that they don't have that life lesson.
2: So what you're saying is all those people around the pool that would have known, hey, if you dive into shallow water... You might break your neck.
3: Yeah, like, hey, I knew this one guy that dove headfirst into a pool. That's a big no-no.
2: But now that story doesn't exist.
3: Right. So now what?
2: Hmm. Maybe season six would have been Sam leaping around to save all those people.
3: (laughs) You know what I mean, right? I mean...
2: Yeah, I mean, everything they do affects everything else.
3: Luckily, they saved whatever kid that was that was studying in the building, right?
2: Right. I'm going to say, Scooter... Or, or or maybe duck
3: <laughs> Well, but I mean, obviously his family was affected by that and they're not now, which is good. The lesson there was learned still.
2: Do you think Newt was paralyzed in the original timeline because you would think that Ziggy and Al would have came up with that. You might be here to save Newt from being paralyzed.
3: Well, they said that he gets paralyzed right the neck down
2: After the bomb was disarmed in that timeline that they're now in, Newt broke his neck. But that doesn't say that in the timeline when the bomb went off, that Newt broke his neck.
3: Yeah, I don't know anymore. (laughs) (laughs) I'm so confused. See, it skews into a tangent. I don't know if you remember
2: Back to the Future 2.
3: You make me watch those movies every year. (laughs) I remember it. October. I don't know. I, I guess it really is. There's no concrete answer. But I just feel like not that him being paralyzed is a good thing. You hear these stories and they're tragic and horrible. But then it makes you think twice about your decisions and you, you learn something from it. When Newt gets paralyzed, those people at the party kind of learned a life lesson and then you take that away. And it's awesome that Newt isn't paralyzed. But then doesn't it affect those people's lives, too?
2: I think it might. So I choose to believe that in the original timeline when the bomb did go off and the one person was killed, that Newt didn't get paralyzed totally didn't even consider that. Time travel, there are so many different things that could possibly happen. But I think in the writer's room, they weren't really concerned about that as much as, hey, you know what, this, and it might have been back then when this kind of thing was happening to people. It's more important that instead of these 20 people around the pool, the 20 million people watching around the world get this lesson.
3: Oh yeah. And I like I said, I like the way it played out and I am glad that he's not paralyzed, but I like to just think outside the box and think about the what ifs, you know, the extra things in the episode because I'm weird like that.
2: I think Duck was very lucky that Sam was there to save him because I think Duck might have been, now thinking about it, the one who died originally.
3: So he's a lucky duck. He's a lucky duck and he's on his way. We watch a lot of Disney Junior in our house. I think you're right. I think he was probably the one in the building. Bad planning on his part.
2: First rule about Bomb Club. Don't talk about Bomb Club.
3: He didn't talk about it, though. He was like, I'm just going to blow myself up. (laughs) (laughs) Well, maybe Darren Dalton will shed some light onto Duck's character in his interview.
2: So now you get to hear my conversation I had with Darren Dalton, and he played Duck.
3: Darren Dalton is an actor, writer, and producer who made his film debut in Francis Ford Coppola's *The Outsiders* as Randy Anderson. He was also in 1984's *Red Dawn*. Since then, he has appeared in numerous movies and television shows, including *Highway to Heaven*, *Dr. Quinn Medicine Woman*, and one of Albie's favorites, *Alienation*. As of late, he has become a prolific screenwriter and producer. But we know him best as Duck from *Quantum Leap*. Albie got a chance to sit down and talk with him about Duck. Quantum Leap and his career. Hey, how's it going?
2: Uh, pretty good, pretty good. Thank you very much for uh, talking with us today. Sure. We'll just start out by um, asking you a little bit about Quantum Leap.
0: Okay, great. It's been a while since I've seen the episode, so, you know, hopefully you'll refresh me a little bit.
2: All right. Well, you played Duck.
0: I did. I do remember the name Duck, which is, you know, my little, my little boy. It's, the only sound he makes is quacking, so, I mean, it's dear to me.
2: <laughs> Isn't it great to have a little one?
0: It is. It, it is. It's really, it's the best thing in the whole world. It really is, man.
2: I agree with you on that. Uh, your son's name is Jack? Jack, yep. Oh,
5: that's
0: awesome.
2: Uh, yeah, mine's uh, Serenity, and she's just a couple months older than your kid, I think.
0: Yeah, that's a, that's a pretty name. That's a very pretty name.
2: Have you gotten any sleep yet?
0: Uh, we're just starting to. It's, it is light at the end of the tunnel.
2: <laughs> good. It does get better, <laughs> little, little by little. Okay, good. Can you tell me a little bit about your experience filming Quantum Leap as much as you can remember? I know it was 25 years ago.
0: Um, you know what? I remember I remember, I, I remember it being a fantastic experience. You know, Scott Bakula is a pretty awesome dude. You know, I remember bits and pieces, certainly. I, I remember the audition process pretty well, too, because it was an interesting one uh, for the character. Um, it was one of those ones, you know, when you're young and you're doing, like, crazy things. It was one of those times when I, I walked into the audition room, and I think the audition piece was just the – the speech that I give about the, you know, military-industrial complex. Mm-hmm. And so, I you know, I, I, I barged in, and I gave everybody this angry speech about the military-industrial complex, and then I barged out, and I, I just went, I just kept going, went back to my car. <laughs> and it was one of those times where, you know, your heart's beating, and you're like, Did I do... What did I do? I should have stayed there in case they wanted another take or whatever. But by the time I got to my car, by the time I got to my house, it was a message on the machine, because this was message machine time. And uh, they said, listen, we, we loved it, so you are you are now duck. So I remember that, but I, I also very vividly remember the fight scene at the end, because uh, Mr. Dracula is, uh is not someone who necessarily holds back. Right. And so we got pretty crazy with the fight scene, crashing things around in the lab there and stuff like that. But I, I remember a lot of it. And I remember Stacey Edwards as well, who started in the episode, was just a wonderful, wonderful, talented girl and things like that. It was just, it was, you know, it's one of those horrible jobs where you're working in Southern California on beautiful days and, you know, the food's good and everybody's happy and it's just fantastic.
2: Do you uh, like playing the bad guy? Because uh, that seems to happen a little bit when you check out your IMDb. Yeah.
0: <laughs> yeah it was yeah it's funny it's 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 the way it kind of rolled out you know duck was a little bit badder than i normally would play you know usually i get stuck in somebody that's a little bit more uh like in the outsiders you know there's, there's a little a little gold there in the heart and there's uh you know red dawn there's a little bit of a victim there and things like that but uh that just straight up, uh, you know, had some bad intentions. But uh, it, it can be very liberating to play the bad guy. I got to say, it's it's uh, it, it's fun. It's not necessarily the way I roll in the real life. So every once in a while, it's nice to just go out there and be a little evil.
2: Uh, you mentioned Red Dawn and Outsiders, probably two of the things that you're known for the most. Yes. Could you uh, tell us about those things? Because that's very exciting.
0: You know what? Those are still ones that people. People really love The Outsiders. is such a close the book. Was so, it's so close to so many people, and that that movie just—it's got such a fan base even today. That's crazy, and such a beautiful, wonderful film. Was the first thing I ever took part in, and it all pales by comparison. After you do that, your first your first gig—that's a pretty tough one to follow up. But great cast, still guys that I'm in touch with, and things like that. And then, uh, you know, Red Dawn. Who doesn't want to go play army? in the mountains in new mexico for four months and go through training and you know fire guns and take out the russians it was another just fantastic one and and, and both of them have uh fans that are, are somewhat can be uh pretty passionate about the films themselves certainly outsiders doesn't and red dawn you know you constantly run into people that are kind of saying like that could really happen <laughs> you know and stuff so it's uh but but uh both of them Great directors, Francis Ford Coppola with *The Outsiders*, and John Milius, who's a great writer and director. Uh, that did *Red Dawn*. I actually just took part in a wonderful documentary they made about Mr. Milius, called *Milius*. That if you haven't seen it, you should really check it out. It really shows you. I think the, the the tagline for it was "The Greatest Filmmaker You Never Knew," and it's true. He's uh, you know he wrote *Apocalypse Now*. He wrote *Jeremiah Johnson*. I mean, he, he's he's just a fantastic guy. So, you know, ultimately. When you get in those movies, and especially when, you know, you're younger, and you're you're in these ensemble casts with all these other young guys, and you're in some small town in America, and uh, it, it's, it's a pretty good time.
2: Yeah, I just watched those two movies last night, and like you said, the cast is crazy. Crazy. Everybody's in it.
0: Yeah, I mean, Tom Cruise, you know, popping up there, and, you know, the, the secret there that was interesting that you just don't see anymore these days, and it was not something that I experienced since then, really, you know, and that was three decades ago is the audition process was very different for, for both of those films, but especially for the outsiders, because that was something where they brought everybody in they put everybody into a warehouse all together. And they, you know, they improvised and they, Francis Coppola would say, okay, you play this role, you play this role. And everybody would get up and do scenes and everybody was together. And, And I think uh, at the time I was going to high school in Albuquerque, New Mexico, and I was flown out to these auditions and I was just so blown away because it was the great people of that time. It was the Scott Bales and it was the, you know, it was Mickey Rourke, young Mickey Rourke, all these people. And it was an amazing experience because normally, like nowadays, you walk into a room, you get your five minutes, you, you know, you walk out. And this was a lot different experience where I think I probably put in about Fifty hours of audition time for the outsiders, and, and really never so much read the role that I got. So it was, I think, finding that cast. But it's not a it's not an accident that that cast is so fantastic, and everybody's moved on to have success in the business, and some of them phenomenal success. So I don't think it's a it's not a it wasn't an accident. It was really an effort that you don't really see much these days to to put that cast together.
2: Now, later in your career, besides acting, you've uh, done some uh, writing and producing. Like, you've written the screenplay for The Land That Time Forgot. That was uh,
0: one I enjoyed. Yeah. You know, uh, writing was always the root of the passion that I had for films. It's the thing. Now it's pretty much exclusively what I do. Those films, like The Land That Time Forgot, the things that I did, which, you know, I did in kind of pretty much in conjunction with uh, with C. Thomas Howell, with Ponyboy there, you know, so who, who I, I've partnered with uh, often on films. And uh, that was for a company called The Global Asylum, who brought you the cinematic pleasure Sharknado.
4: Sharknado, yes. And,
0: yes, and those films are, I mean, that's kind, of, that's kind of like boot camp. You know, you, you go and you write them in about uh, a little less than two weeks. You shoot them in a little less than two weeks. And you're working with very small budgets. And, you know, when you're working with a small budget and you need, you know, Nazis and submarines and dinosaurs, and that can get a little bit uh, difficult, but it, it can also be very fun. And, uh, you know, it's not, uh, it, it's certainly not going to be having any Academy Awards for it. But but the truth is, is it's a, it was a really good time. It was something that taught me a great deal about filmmaking and certainly independent, low budget filmmaking. But uh, ultimately, it was a good time. The things that I'm doing now are a little, you know, a little bit uh, on a little higher level. So it takes a little bit more time, but I'm just, the last two couple of years I've gotten into television writing and that's starting to be pretty exciting. And it, it, it's really where my heart's been the whole time. It was, you know, it was when I auditioned for the outsiders and it still continues to be.
2: Could you tell us a little bit about some of your latest projects that you're working on?
0: Well there's a lot of top secret stuff going on here, man okay. um I, it, it's uh it's but stuff that I would really love to break to you guys when it ultimately happens. um We're right in the thick of what's called pilot season uh you know, there's different pilot seasons there's ones for uh you know when you're an actor, there's a pilot season that's earlier in the year that's when you're getting cast and and making a new pilot. There's a writer, there's a season uh when you're going out and you're you're pitching and and people are are looking for those pilots that they're going to buy that then those later those those actors will make so. That's kind of, we're right in the thick of that, of that right now. I'm also working with uh, C. Thomas on another project as well called Countdown. It's an awfully fun project, kind of an Armageddon type of project with a, a large family element to it. And we also, you know, we have a couple of other projects where we're meeting at Universal, a lot of projects. So there's uh, there's a lot going on. But uh, when there's something solidified that I can, uh, can tell the world about, then I'll get back in touch with you guys and, and break it on the, on the podcast. All
2: right. Do you get a lot of people that uh, come up to you and recognize you as uh, your favorite character? And has that ever happened as your Quantum Leap character?
0: You know what, there's some people, you know, because I, I was lucky enough to do some sort of iconic, a lot of iconic television work. Uh, you know, I also did a role on uh, Highway to Heaven, for instance, and, you know, there were a lot of people that loved that, like they loved Quantum Leap, uh, and I played Custer on uh, Dr. Quinn, Medicine Woman, a lot of people liked that as well, you know, so you get that every once in a while, you get the people that are really kind of the diehard fans. I get more people coming up to me and, you know, wanting to know why I tried to kill Johnny or, you know, <laughs> call, call, you know, calling me a traitor or whatever it is from the, from the larger movies. But I I always, I always love it when, you know, like you guys, for instance, I love it when somebody has a passion for those television shows, you know, quantum leap is such an amazing show to me. The guy that developed, that created the show, Donald Bellasario is someone who I'm such a fan of. I was a big fan when I was a kid of the original Battlestar Galactica, which was uh, Donald Bellasario as well. And I just thought that quantum leap as well was such an inventive idea and obviously, you're working with two great actors because, I mean, both those lead guys were so fantastic. I, you know, I was just a fan of both of them and it, it, it was a really good time. So I love it when I get somebody that comes up and says, Hey, you were, you know, you were the terrorist on, uh, on Quantum Leap or whatever. Then it's to me, that's, that's, uh, that's, that's always a little bit, you know, a little bit more rewarding on some level.
2: Do you remember while you were filming that episode of Quantum Leap, it's kind of like a heavy issue with Vietnam and homegrown terrorism. Do you remember it being like a serious thing on the set or was it, you know, that was the material and you had a fun time besides that? Or was uh, like the main topics of the episode not even brought up?
0: Well, I'll tell you, you know, it certainly wasn't the climate that it is now as far as terrorism goes. And and it's an interesting uh, kind of parallel there between the post Vietnam era and the post 9-11 type of things, you know, but it was very serious for me. You know, I mean, obviously, when you play a role like that, you can't take it too lightly because if if you don't have a passionate kind of uh, dedication to what you're talking about, then it's just going to come off as as, uh, not so great. And it was an eye-opening role for me because... I grew up in a small town. I wasn't really, and I was a little bit after the Vietnam era. I was very young during that time. So I never, you know, the military industrial complex and all that stuff, I didn't really get too much exposure to that. Um, So it was really exciting to me to learn about that. That's one of the great things about acting is you get to kind of, you know, completely immerse yourself in these, uh, these characters. And that's another thing about playing the bad guy. You know, when you get to immerse yourself in something that if you did it in real life, you'd be spending time behind bars, then it's, it's, it's fun. And the same, same with, you know, you do a war movie and you get to pull the trigger and, and somebody goes down and a squid goes off and the blood flies and things like that. You experience these things without having to deal with the, the reality of it, which certainly I wouldn't want to deal with, but, uh, it was, uh, it was an interesting role for me because of that. You know, again, if you, if you think about, if somebody had done that, that episode now, you know, somebody planting a bomb in a school locker and, you know, things like that, it's, it it would be a lot heavier issue, but, you know, Scott took his job very seriously on the episode and everybody took their job very seriously. So we had a lot of fun, but it was something that we were really committed to, you know, again, the, the speech in there, the duck gives, was something that I, I had to really find a, a passion for because it was such a, it, it called for such passion. So it was, it was something that I, I felt pretty, pretty heavily about. And, you know, I mean, who doesn't feel heavily about, even now you look at the, you look at the situation of veterans and, and, and the wars that we're in now and, and the veterans coming back and the difficulty there. It's still an issue that has a lot of impact and it probably, probably always will and always has. So it, it's one of the things I loved about the show. It wasn't fluff, you know, as, as much as you're having fun with these, you know, the other guys got to have a lot more fun. The Stuart Fractons and those guys that were the frat guys, mm-hmm. they got to have a lot more fun than Duck did. You know what I mean? But uh, <laughs> right. um, but I thought that, uh, that that show had a great balance of it being entertaining, but also having in issues and and, uh, and stuff behind its subtext that uh, that had, some, had a little bit more weight to it. You know, so I was happy to be a part of it.
2: Do you think Duck was doing it because he really believed in ending the Vietnam War or do you think part of it was to get the girl?
0: You know, I think initially he was there for the war and then, you know, and then ultimately maybe his ego was a little bit bruised by the fact that uh, he couldn't get the girl. I think that's certainly part of it, but you know, I mean that's that's kind of where it goes in life for a little, you know, when you, when you read about a lot of people who get into messy stuff, you know, you you have the best intentions going in and then, and then things get a little bit ugly, but, uh, you know, I, I, Stacey Edwards is kind of a cute girl, man. I, I definitely would have, uh, definitely yes. would have gone a little crazy. Very cute girl.
2: <laughs>
0: Are the technical
2: things, uh, in acting like, uh, the fight scene you mentioned with Scott Bakula or like getting shot in red dawn or just, uh, being pushed through a fire. Is that stuff fun for you or is it just another part of the job?
0: You know what? A lot of the time it's a great deal of fun, but, uh, you know, you you have enough to deal with as an actor to hit your marks and make sure the light doesn't. You know, you're not covering someone else's light and doing all these things when you're just having a walking and talking scene. So when you ultimately start mixing in things like punches and broken glass and and gunshots and squibs and things like that, then uh, it gets a, it gets tricky. It becomes a very precise situation and much different than you'd think. You know, it's the same. A better example is a love scene because it's so awkward you know because you're you know you have to kiss in a way that makes sure you don't cover the light that's supposed to fall on her eyes and things like that and it it just all feels very awkward but i love the physical stuff i love the fight scene in this because there was a great coordinator and uh, uh i like to do as much of that stuff as i can um obviously you know you get some great stunt guys in there they'll step in and and uh, do some amazing stuff that you could never do. Although I always found that maybe it's just the way my hair is, but I, I always found that there was always a bad wig on my double So it was always it was always terrible. I could always go, oh my God, that's a horrible wig. But, uh, um, you know, something like being shot in Red Dawn was an interesting experience because, first off, it was extremely cold. It was below zero. Um, so they had a lot of issues with uh, with the, when I say a squib, a squib is a, you know, it's a blood pack that has a, a, an ignition device uh, underneath it. So you have a wire that goes down your leg and when they, when they hit a button, then it blows the, you know, gives you the gunshot, right? Mm-hmm. So the problem that they had on Red Dawn was it was so cold that the blood was freezing um, in the pack. So they would hit the squib and it wouldn't go off. It would, it would just it'd be a black hole. It wouldn't really look like somebody had gotten shot. So you're standing there getting ready to do this very intense emotional scene and you've got a couple of people over there with, uh, you know, with hair dryers, you know, blowing a couple of areas on your chest to keep it warm. It's one of those things that gets a little bit more difficult to uh, to emotionally connect with, you know, because I mean, that's that's certainly the biggest uh, challenge in film acting is. Many times your most emotional moment, you've got a camera six inches from your face, and that can be, a you know, maybe you can't even see your act, your, the person you're acting with. So there's, there's always that challenge. But I had a, an experience with that scene when, when I was killed in Red Dawn, which if you watch the scene, there's a very long, long take after I get shot it includes when I get shot, I get shot and then I go down and then there's a very long scene while everybody else rides off on horses. And then Patrick Swayze gets on his horse and comes back and looks, and he tears his eyes down at me and then rides off into the distance. And, and, and the director wanted you know, him to ride quite a ways into the distance. So I was laying there and it, it's sub zero again, it's, it's very cold and I'm laying there with my face down in the snow and uh, ultimately with my face away from the camera because obviously you still have to breathe when it's that long. So, you fall with your face away from the camera so that your breath isn't seen. And, um, I had, you know, we were very hyped up on that, on that movie. We listened to a lot of clips now in our trailers and we really got into being these soldiers. And, uh, I had a kind of a flip out moment. I remember, uh, where a very long take, and I kind of started to, you know, mentally, my, uh, my head went to, you know what, what if, those people that I'm watching right away really are the people that I'm with. What if there's not a camera behind me? What if it's all for real and they're leaving me behind? And you know, my, my, my brain started to play the trick on me and I really had to to force myself to stay down, not instead of turning my head to look and make sure that it was all a, all a movie. And, uh, I remember having a very strong emotional moment of, of wait a minute, maybe this is, you know, maybe I'm kind of screwed here, you know, but, uh, you know, and then somebody yells cut and then, it's it's, a, it's all good. But it's it especially when you're young, you you get so emotionally invested in those movies. And, and Quantum Leap was the same. You know, I mean, you have to get so deeply emotionally invested into those characters that you're playing that uh, that ultimately you're you're going to experience a lot of what they experience.
2: As a actor who is now writing a lot, is there anything, things like that, that maybe you have, have experienced while you were acting that you just won't write now because you don't want another actor to go through that?
0: No, 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 no. I think it's just. I think it's the opposite for me. now, now, let's torture them as much as possible. <laughs> no, I, 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 I think. I don't think as an actor when I'm writing. I mean, I, I, I think that you know, I, I, I try to write characters that I think actors would love to play. But ultimately, and and maybe it's similar to what we were just talking about as far as acting goes. Um, you're so invested into the whole thing emotionally as a writer that you're not really thinking. At least while you're doing it, you're not thinking, uh, you know. Well, this is this is going to be tough on the actor, or this is going to be. But you know, afterwards you might look at it and go, oh, well, man, I gave somebody a very difficult job. But uh, even with as much acting as I've done, I'm always amazed at the depths that actors can reach, you know, because because of some of the, the technicalities and things like that that you have to deal with. So I really just try to write things that ultimately they can invest that emotion into on a realistic level that they don't have to do too much, but that is real that has some um, dimension to it. So it's, it's easier for them. That's probably the, the, the thing that I think about from a, as a writer from, from the actor's perspective is I want to make sure that it's as easy as possible for them so that they can go as far as they can.
2: All right. Uh, we have a silly question about the episode. Sure. Um, okay. The necklace you wore. In the yes. Quantum Leap episode is like a Puka Shell necklace. Was that specifically talked about or is it just something that they threw on you because it appeared in another episode, so we were just wondering if that was something maybe a costume designer had in mind or
0: something? Well, it was certainly something that the costume designers gave me. Um, I think that they were just really trying to evoke the the period, you know. Um but that was one of the fun parts about the about the that show is there was so many cool period things happening. I remember some of the clothes were pretty ridiculous and crazy, and uh, and you know it was one of those shows that you know, the pants were cut so high that you were just like oh my god what am I doing? <laughs> but the uh, um, the puka shell necklace I remember being maybe they kind of planned to to run that through the episodes and things like that. But uh, but I remember very specifically them saying you know and you're going to wear this. So I don't know it could be a what do they call them a an, an Easter egg or a, whatever the one of those hidden hidden symbols.
5: Very cool. Thank you. Um,
2: yep. Is there anything else you remember from your time with Quantum Leap? Any, or maybe any funny stories that came as a result of being connected with Quantum Leap?
0: I don't. You know, I don't know. It's, you do something like that. You do a, a guest starring role on that on a on a show like that that's, a, that's only a single episode, and unfortunately, it's it's far too short. You get some good friends, and you get to know some good people. But but for the most part, you know, about ten days of your life, you're doing that, and then it's kind of. It moves on to something else, and and uh, like I said, all I remember is just fantastic actors, great people, and uh, wonderful director, great director on that on that episode. And I have remained friends with some of the people that came out of that. Like I said, Stuart Fracken, great guy who played uh, one of the dudes that was uh, that was hanging out with Scott. So it was a great time. But it just what you know, you know, time is man. It's, 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 and you know, like you, I know, I know you have a child of your own. I have a 15-month-old, and believe me, I, I'm having a hard time remembering what I did yesterday.
2: Yeah, sleep de- <laughs> uh, sleep deprived, and also uh, the time is moving yeah. so fast. Uh, how, those last 15 months, how fast have they moved for you, right?
0: Oh my God, it's crazy, you know, because uh, I still haven't adjusted to just having a little tiny baby, and then suddenly, when this when this little guy walks into the kitchen and scratches his stomach and looks up at me like. You know like i owe him money uh I, I i it's it's amazing to me that it's it does go so fast suddenly he's a little boy you know i, I was looking at him today as a matter of fact and just thinking this is and suddenly a little boy Where's the baby so uh it it it's it's an amazing thing but you know there you go i mean that's how fast the last 30 years have gone as well
2: <laughs> thank you very much and i uh, really appreciate it and thank you so much for taking the
0: time you got it man anytime thank you man thank you guys uh and good job on the podcast and keeping uh, the leap alive
5: into sci-fi tv hey everybody welcome back i'm brent barrett i'm kevin Batchelder.
4: i'm wendy Hemprock.
5: the viewer's guide to genre television
4: welcome everyone to a special supernatural focus bonus. hello everyone
5: show. and welcome to the faith a family of podcasts for the genre loving television viewer welcome to saturday b movie reel
4: Hi, everyone, welcome to the study welcome group to the top
5: genre characters of all-time countdown and
4: tonight we're going to be talking about game of thrones season three
5: find us at tuning into sci-fi tv.com the radio station in Chester's Mill may have burned down, but you can still hear
6: hits like
1: And they're still having fun, Chester's Mill's the one
5: And
6: Splish Splash the egg was
1: taking a bath, deep below on the filled lake Rob a double that's how Julia didn't love, making this decision in haste
6: All thanks to Under the Dome Radio. This summer, Troy and Wayne return to
5: discuss what happened when we were...
1: Blinded by the light.
6: Wrapped up in the noose as the dome, it turned to white. Blinded by the light. Dome, it turned away. Be life, sure to set the dial life, of your podcasting life. app to Under the Dome Radio and keep the propane donations flowing at
4: Under the Dome, 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 dome Radio dome.
5: A proud member of the Noodle Mix Network
0: This is John Diaclino and you're listening to the Quantum Leap Podcast
3: I loved hearing about his son, That was that was really cool
2: Yeah, it's fun being a new parent. Probably not all of our listeners wanted to hear us talk about it, but that's what I was interested in talking to him about because I had checked out his Facebook and many of the pictures of him and his family are very similar to my pictures. There was one picture of his son with all the pots and pans out of the cabinets. And I was like, does every kid do that?
3: Yes, I think it's a requirement. Also, he mentioned uh, the puka shell necklace.
2: Yeah, um, so maybe that was something that is connected to other episodes. Like it was in Thou Shalt Not. So might be part of the burger theory, might not. I'm not positive because I think the burger theory specifically is connecting one episode to another. Like this episode is connected to the last episode because of the drowning. Yes. Both in the lake and beer. And I'm sure there's other connections.
3: I don't know if I'd rather drown in a lake or beer. Uh, depending if I
2: had to drive later or not. <laughs> and we have some feedback these emails will
3: be read by Juan this one's from Ben Mychek.
7: I'm listening to Blind Faith I am visually impaired can't see out of right eye I can't see anything not even blackness you wanted to know Albie
2: so I guess my theory of being blind that I talked about in Blind Faith is more like I thought where it's like your elbow you don't see anything it's not blackness like if you walk around with your eyes closed so now we have that confirmed and thank you Ben
3: I still can't wrap my brain around that. What does your foot see right now? Well, no, I get it. Like, I get I get it, but I just can't imagine not seeing anything. This one's from Martin.
7: Hi, Albie and Heather. I started listening to the podcast a few weeks ago and just caught up with the latest episode. I really enjoy what you're doing and the perspectives from a longtime watcher of the show and a newbie. My experience is somewhere in between. I was a regular watcher of the series in its first run, but missed quite a few episodes along the way. Now I'm listening to the podcast, I'm watching the series from the beginning, and just now finishing up season 2. Anyway, I wanted to comment on Catch a Falling Star. As a regular theater goer for the past decade, and friends with a lot of performers, I really enjoyed this episode. Donald P. Belisario did a great job directing, making this episode feel like a theatrical experience, right down to the curtain call during the credits. It didn't hurt that he had a lot of very talented stage actors in the episode, four of which I've actually seen in live productions. I've seen Ernest Abilla in both Sweet Charity and Curtains, both of which played at the same Broadway theater coincidentally, The Hirschfield. I've seen our Dulcinea from this episode, Michelle Park, in the plays Losing Louis in 2006 and A Small Fire in 2011. Jean Collem was in a revival of William Shakespeare's Cymbeline that I was lucky enough to attend in 2008. And the fourth actor from this episode I've seen in a show, Scott was in Shenandoah at Ford's Theater in Washington, D.C. in 2006. Interesting fact, he played the role of Charlie Anderson in this production, a role that won John Colum a Tony Award for his portrayal in 1975. I just wanted to share this with you and to tell you to keep up the good work. Martin Totten, Baltimore, Maryland.
2: Wow, thank you, Martin, for sending that email. And uh, as well as that, he sent us pictures along with everyone he met. So it was really nice to see everybody still and a great picture of him and Scott Bakula and um, super jelly.
3: I have to say Scott Bakula aged well. Yes. I mean, that picture of him. Well, the pictures of everybody from To Get to Falling Star, the picture of him and Scott, Scott looks awesome.
2: I haven't seen a bad picture of him. That's very true. Maybe that's why he's a famous actor. (laughs) Yeah, maybe. And I'm not. You have to take about 50 of me to get a good one, I think. Oh stop! <laughs> and if you want to see those pictures, find them on quantumlypodcast dot com.
3: They are really cool. You should check them out. And this one's from Phil, our friend Phil.
7: Good day, Albie and Heather. I thought you guys would enjoy a traditional Aussie greeting this time. So I finally caught up with your back catalog of Quantum Leap podcasts, and the show seems to be getting better with each episode. You guys are definitely my favorite podcast now. It's great that you can talk about each episode with such depth and enthusiasm. Even when you're nitpicking, and the amount of time you devote to listener feedback on each show is awesome. Of course, now that I don't have any new episodes of yours left to listen to, I suppose I'll just have to go back to your Genesis episode and start again. I may notice a drop in the audio quality as Albie talked about, but I'm sure it won't keep me from enjoying it still. As it happens, Brittany and I are about to watch A Portrait for Trojan, which I'm very keen to see after listening to all of your discussion on Miss Stoltz and her motives in this episode. My personal feeling from the last time I watched this episode, which was quite a while ago, is that while Jimmy was behind the high-tech shenanigans, Miss Stoltz was responsible for the spooky stuff going on, like the reappearing painting. It'll be fun to see if I can come out of the episode with a different perspective this time, and Hayden's article has given me a lot of food for thought as well. No, we're not the same person either. Anyway, now that I've gotten caught up with you guys, I was thinking about a way that I could contribute something to the show because I'd definitely like to do something to say thanks for giving me such an awesome, entertaining show to listen to. And I remembered I'll be talking about how episode recaps for Quantum Leap are hard to find. If you guys need some help with recaps for upcoming episodes, I'd love to write some for you. So please let me know if there are any other episodes you'd like me to work on, and I'll get started right away. In the meantime, thanks for all the hard work you guys are doing to create such a great podcast. Talk to you soon. Cheers. Phil.
2: Thank you so much. Very good points, Phil. And uh, just to let everybody else know, he is going to be taking over the role of episode recaps, starting with another mother. So in the next episode.
3: Juan should have read that with an Australian accent. Next time, Juan. (laughs) (laughs) It didn't sound the same.
2: Hopefully he's at home saying,
3: challenge accepted. (laughs) And you know, I have to say, if it was Hayden writing as Phil, he would say that it wasn't Hayden. (laughs) That's exactly what
2: Hayden would say. Exactly. We want to know what you think. Is it Hayden or is it Phil?
3: Are they two different people?
2: We should play a game, (laughs) Phil or Hayden. (laughs) Maybe in another episode. Our game show episode.
3: Oh, this one's from David Feldman.
7: Hey, Quantum Leapers. This is David in Minneapolis again. I'm writing to let you know that I've been listening to your podcast just about every day for the past month. I jog every morning on the Midtown Greenway in South Minneapolis. And for several weeks now, the Quantum Leap podcast has been a part of my daily exercise regimen. I only have three episodes left until I'm caught up on your podcast, so I guess I'll have to go back to audiobooks and music pretty soon. Anyway, the Quantum Leap Podcast is my favorite podcast at the moment. Season 2 is my favorite era of the series, so your recent episodes have been particularly fun to listen to. By the way, if there are any other Quantum Leap listeners in the Twin Cities, let me know, I'm very interested in starting a Quantum Leap meetup group. We would even watch episodes in sequence along with the Quantum Leap Podcast. Keep up the good work, Heather and Albie. Keep on leaping on.
2: The Quantum Leap podcast not only entertains, also helps you stay in shape.
3: Look out for our new workout video coming soon.
2: Yeah, so it's great that uh, he listens so much.
3: There's a lot of leaping involved.
2: I just saw on his Instagram, I know I mentioned it last time, but I'm a big fan of David's Instagram that he's got a Quantum Leap t-shirt. It's pretty cool. Yes. I tagged you in that. Yes, you did. Since you make the executive decisions about the t-shirts.
3: That's a very cool shirt. Hint, hint. Yes, yes, I know. There's one of, like, Ziggy. Really? Yeah, handlink. The handlink mm-hmm. That's awesome. Yes, I've seen that one.
2: But it's uh, nice to get great feedback like that, and uh, keep it coming. And this one's from Father Beast.
7: This was just a fun little episode. Lots of things to laugh at, from the guy throwing up on Sam's shoes at the party, to the poor pledge running from the dog. It had a number of laughs to go with. When Sam complains to Al of his situation, Al inexplicably doesn't say, you lucky dog, as I'm used to hearing, I kind of miss it. It seems that Wild Thing is such a force among his peers that anything Sam decides to do is okay, and they all just accept it. That's kind of weird. On a more serious note, Sam's main adversary seems to be the kind of guy out to prove himself better than guys like Nut. I think he's less dedicated to his purported cause than in making himself out as better than other people. That's what makes him dangerous. I think that Sam's heartfelt line that he lost a brother in Vietnam was well-placed, even though he doesn't lose that brother into a few years in the future. Since Sam just remembered him a few episodes ago, that memory is doubly precious and it explains why Sam got uncharacteristically belligerent. Anyway, we have people trying to do important things which set others at risk, and at least one other whose motives are somewhat darker. But it was, all in all, fun to watch. Why on earth he had to stick around and do the luau god thing is beyond me, though. Next time, a mother with quarreling children.
2: Next time? A mother with quarreling children. I'm looking forward to that episode. I don't know if you know that.
3: I feel like I can relate to that one. Maybe.
2: I think you will be able to. <laughs>
3: <laughs> I don't even have I have a quarreling child. How does that work out? <laughs> she fights with herself.
2: <laughs> and like I mentioned earlier, how
3: long the credits
2: are, I think they might have just been running short. But the diving thing, I think, is important because if you save one Person that watched that episode of Quantum Leap and they were about to dive into either shallow water or just water they didn't know how deep it was. Cause that that's a big problem too, like diving into a river or a creek and you
3: hitting know, your head on a rock.
2: Yeah, or a log or something. That if it saved one person from either dying or becoming paralyzed, that it was worth it.
3: We have exciting news, folks. We have an essay winner. And his name is just as awesome as that news JJ Flanagan Graneman.
7: Why I Love Quantum Leap. Q is for Sam, the quick study who knows, or can fake, almost anything and will question those in charge if he feels they are looking at something the wrong way. U is for understanding different types of people I didn't meet in my rural upbringing and the different viewpoints and world views they had. A is for Al, that lovable lech and rogue, Sam really couldn't have asked for a better best friend. N is for the power of simply being nice to people. T is for trusting that things can be improved by the simple actions of just one person and that strangers can be kind and helpful. U is for the uplifting messages contained in most of the episodes and for facing the unknown and thriving in new environments. M is for many things. The fantastic original period music, the wonderful memories of enjoying these shows when they originally aired, and the moral lessons learned from Sam and Al, two true men of honor. L is for love the love between Sam and Al, and the power of love to heal various wounds throughout a person's life, and for learning how to work around one's own limitations and seek help from others when necessary, and also for the many other life lessons learned throughout 97 hours of fantastic adventures. E is for edutainment, that special mix of education and entertainment the show did so well, including teaching viewers how to deal with important ethical dilemmas, and also for escapism from my late teens-slash-early-twenties drama and embracing people's differences. A is for the adventures in history Sam and Al show us throughout Sam's lifetime, as well as learning to face adversity and learning to assess situations and appreciate each person's special abilities. P is for the learning to stand by your principles and your own personal philosophy of life. J J Flanagan-Graneman, Columbia, South Carolina.
2: Thank you so much. For that essay. That was pretty cool. It was. And now I have a new appreciation for all the letters in Quantum Leap. There's only two more comic books left in this comic book giveaway. It seems like it's been a while since we started this giveaway, but it's quickly coming to a close. And remember, with two more winning essays, that part of the giveaway is over. And then everyone entered is then eligible to win the grand prize of that giveaway, which is the signed comic book art from Quantum Leap.
3: Wow, pretty cool. Very
2: cool. So get those essays in.
3: Well, if you want to leave feedback and talk to us, there are so many ways. You can always go to quantumleappodcast.com. You can go to our Facebook page at facebook.com slash quantumleappodcast.
2: Check us out on Twitter. We are at quantumleappod.
3: You can follow us on Instagram or tag us in your Quantum Leap photos at Quantum Leap Podcast.
2: We are on Patreon at patreon.com slash Quantum Leap Podcast.
3: You can also call and leave us a voicemail. We always love to hear our voicemails.
2: At 707-847-6682.
3: Or you can send us an email at quantumleappodcast at gmail.com. Thank
2: you so much for all the feedback. Keep it coming. We love it. It's a great part of the show. And we love hearing your thoughts. Now we have Hayden segment.
6: In the last episode of the podcast, Heather asked what happens to the Ps while Sam has temporarily taken over their lives. Even though this answer contains some spoilers, most of it's already been guessed correctly, so I don't feel that it's inappropriate to discuss. When a new P arrives in the waiting room, his or her physical and mental health is checked by Dr. Beeks, and then when given the all-clear Al non-forcefully interrogates him or her to find out who he or she is and when and where they are from. Once this information has been gathered, Ziggy locks onto Sam and then Al communicates with him in the imaging chamber to give him the necessary information of who, where and when Sam is and what he is there to do. If Sam needs any more information from the Leapy, Al can go back to the waiting room and ask for it. This might take a while, a problem in a future episode, but it's usually effective. The Ps are kept in relative comfort and are given counselling by Dr Beeks or another trusted person, such as Al, if it is needed. Just like Sam is surrounded by the P's physical aura, appearing to almost everyone else as his host, the P is surrounded by Sam's aura in the waiting room, and so appears to nearly everyone as Sam. Also, just like Sam sometimes absorbs a piece of the memory or the mannerisms of the Leapy, this is also a two-way street. The Leapy sometimes absorbs a piece of Sam, but this is only from the Leap itself and doesn't have any lasting side effects when they leap back to their own lives. When they do return home, some Leapys retain small memories of their time in the waiting room, often attributing it to a dream, Temporarily dying and having an out-of-body experience or having been abducted by aliens, some leapees do not retain any memory of their time in the waiting room at all, and so those days that Sam has replaced them temporarily remains a hole in their memory. But usually enough of Sam's experience there has been absorbed so that they can piece together those missing few days of their lives, even if it wasn't physically them. Getting onto to the subject of this episode of Quantum Leap, Animal Frat is a great episode, with a nice combination of light-hearted fun with some emotional moments that pull on the heartstrings. One thing that really did stick out to me, though, was the timing of Sam's leap in. He leaps into the Tor Kappa Beta Frat Party, but doesn't learn about his mission until the next day, when Al arrives and tells him he has to stop Elizabeth, someone he hasn't even met yet, from blowing up the chemistry building. This makes his time at the party pretty much pointless. But was it? If we remember back to Catch a Falling Star, Sam complains about not being able to have a life of his own. Basically always working without ever being able to take a break. When Sam leaps in, he's in the middle of chugging from a beer bong. And everybody he meets seems to absolutely adore his host Wild Thing. It seems to me that God or time or fate or whatever wanted Sam to have a night off from his duties and just wanted Sam to enjoy himself. A very sexy set of twins was even waiting for Sam in his bed. Seriously, who better to have as your wingman than God himself? Sam really should have taken this opportunity to enjoy himself as we have seen these moments are few and far between. Luckily, Sam does learn to have some fun in this leap And the recurring theme throughout the series later is not only Sam putting right a mistake in history, but also that occasionally he, and even Al, will learn and grow from the experience. This episode seems to be the first of these. I also think that the timing of this more relaxing leap is prudent, considering Sam's next mission, as a working single mother, has him even more flat out than usual. So, Leapers, the moral of this story until next time, is to take what life throws at you and have as much fun as you possibly can with it.
2: Last time on the Guantanamo podcast, when I talked to Carolyn Seymour, I had mentioned that I put Survivors in my Netflix queue. Jill sent me a note. Apparently, I was mistaken. I did have Survivors in my Netflix queue to watch because it had Carolyn Seymour in it, but I had the wrong Survivors in my queue. Apparently, they did a reboot series. So I quickly deleted that from my queue, and I'm going to have to buy it on DVD. Two of my friends that are really into classic Doctor Who, who tell me all the time that I need to check out Survivors, talking about the original series is... uh the one I want to watch. And sorry if I confused anyone or even Carolyn Seymour herself because she was like, oh, really? Listening back. Whoops. <laughs> so uh I should check the year next to when I add stuff to my queue. Have you ever done that, added something wrong to your queue?
3: Well, I, I guess not with the same name, but I, I like when it's like Frozen came out and then they had like the Ice Queen. You oh. know, it's like the... The cheaper version of the same movie. Right. I I
2: firmly believe those things are made for grandparents because (laughs) they think they're buying their grandkid the right movie, but they're not.
3: What's funny is they're usually like the same
4: price.
2: (laughs) Yeah. So they're just trying to take advantage of people, I think. That's like when Aladdin came out, there was like Arabian boy. (laughs) Oh, well. Always. Heather, do you have any trivia?
3: Well, there was a part in the episode where Al is seated next to Sam, but there's no mention or anything on whether there's a chair in the imaging chamber. I wonder how they did that.
2: They didn't really show him from the belly down, so he could have just, like, sunk himself into the floor and only been, like, half a hologram.
3: He can, like, float in midair like that again? Oh,
2: yeah. He was on the tree
4: oh, in the shoot. beginning of
2: Honeymoon Express. Or not in the tree, or hovering around a tree. mm It could have been like that. But if you look at the beginning of that scene, he kind of does a sitting down motion. So maybe he was like, Sam, sitting down, get me the chair. But if his butt was touching it, right, wouldn't we see the chair? But again, the shot was from only the torso up. It's one of those burning mysteries we'll never know the answer to.
3: There was so much theory in that I don't even know where to go.
2: (laughs) I think about these things because
3: I'm like, hmm, what just happened there? Why is there no chair under his butt? Oh, wait, we can't see it anyway.
2: (laughs) (laughs) The things I think about. I have a little bit of trivia. The twins from Sam's Bed, Jacqueline, Alexandra Citron, and Kristen Amber Citron were also in Tales from the Crypt, the episode Split Personality, and I remember them in that. That was pretty good. They were also in Cheers, and uh, Herman's Head, which has a connection to Quantum Leap, through Jane Sabet. So that's my little bit of trivia.
3: I figured you would have some kind of trivia about them. (laughs)
2: <laughs> Twins
3: The title of this episode is actually based on the 1978 movie Animal House Ah, huh. So I guess it was pretty similar to the movie And that's why they named it that I guess Al couldn't have known Sam at age 16 Because Al, as we later find out, was somewhere else at this time
2: Ah, and I think people that have seen the series already know what we're talking about
3: I just assumed that Sam like told Al about his college days
2: Maybe, that's true We do find out in another episode about what Sam was doing at 17, and he wasn't in college yet. So
3: there are some
2: inconsistencies.
3: Rules. Yeah. Ever-changing rules.
2: Meant to be broken. Thank you so much, Heather, for the trivia. I look forward to it every episode.
3: It's my pleasure.
2: Are you looking forward to another mother? I think so. I think you would like another mother.
3: I am a mother, so... (laughs) Wouldn't that be helpful
2: if there was two mothers?
3: I don't know. I don't know. I, I It's going to be interesting to see Sam as a mom. He is a mom to three children. That already makes me need a nap. So he's a woman again. That's a weird sentence, if taken out of context. <laughs> <laughs>
2: Sam is a woman again, and he's a mother in the 80s. Hmm. So it's going to be fun. It, it should be fun. Hopefully, it'll be a fun, lighthearted episode, and there won't be too many bad things that, oh, mm, no, I don't want to watch this episode. <laughs> no, it's a good episode. There's a Wookiee in it.
1: Get <laughs> no, it, get it, shrimp. Mommy! Mom! Mom! Mother Please fix my dog.
2: My poor doll is all chewed up. I'm a mommy.
1: Now it's nobody's shirt. Now it's just a torn rag.
2: Where's my mommy?
1: She's in front of you.
2: That's not my mommy, that's a man
7: That's not my mommy, that's a man So it's the guy in the
1: yucky shirt This is my favorite shirt, this is cutting-edge stuff
7: It's yucky
1: Oh, how can she see me? Animals and kids What if she say the They're pure of heart You know, you can't lie to a kid They see right through you, they see the real you Why? Why? Uh-oh, to help your big brother Do what? Okay, Al, what are we really here to do? But sometime in the next 24 hours, Kevin runs away from home and... And... He vanishes off the face of the earth. Six months later, his bloodied clothes were found in an abandoned van. You lay one hand on this kid, you slime bag, and I'll kill you.
2: May you all listen to the Quantum Leap podcast again and again while you are running with your toes and eating with your face and looking with your elbows QLP is the life for me QLP is the life for me QLP is the life for me me. me. QLP is the life for me
5: Thank you for joining us for this episode of the Quantum Leap Podcast. Go to QuantumLeapPodcast.com and listen to new episodes. The Quantum Leap Podcast is not affiliated with Belisarius Productions or Universal TV. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram to get behind-the-scenes information, exclusive content, and to be notified first when new episodes are available. To support the podcast, you can go to Patreon.com slash Quantum Leap Podcast. That's patreo dot com slash Quantum Leap Podcast. The thoughts and opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the individual and do not necessarily represent or reflect those of the Quantum Leap podcast, Barron Space Productions, its partners, or affiliates. Quantum Leap podcast is edited by Albie, John Buchanan, and Juan. Research by Juan, contributors Hayden McQueenie and Jill Arroway. Voice talent provided by John Buchanan, Tony Fennerin, and Juan. The co-producer for the Quantum Leap podcast is Hayden McQueenie, and Juan is the line producer. The Quantum Leap universe and all it contains is property of Belisarius Productions and Universal TV. No infringement is intended. The Quantum Leap podcast is a barren space production. In this episode, the drowning,
2: like in this episode is like
3: after nearly drowning in the Claridge. See, you got me thrown off by drowning.
2: (laughs) Your right hand has never touched your right elbow. (laughs) I was <laughs> I have a lot of those. But it's uh nice to get great feedback like that and uh keep it coming.
3: Totally didn't comment on my there's lots of leaping in her workout video. Oh no, I didn't leaping. get it. Yeah. Like galloping, like I physical
2: like it. Leap. It's good.
3: <sighs> that
2: was pretty cool. It was. Um and now I have new appreciation for all and now I have all uh what
3: everything I want to say is not
2: nice. We do the same thing every episode.
3: I know, which is why it's redundant. Let's as, soon as, as, soon as, I, as soon nine. as I see the
2: first number, I'm like, oh yeah,
3: <laughs> you can call us at eight six seven five three zero oh, nine and hit us up on AIM.
2: <laughs> <laughs> Our AOL Instant Messenger name is. No, wait, they don't have that anymore, do they?
3: <laughs> they probably do. They might. I don't
2: know. Remember texting
3: when you had to be at home to text? I just I liked the be right back message that you had. I wish they had that for texting.
2: You've got email. Not that. No?
3: When you could leave like a, I'm away from my computer. So if anybody messaged you, they would know you weren't there. Well, I need like a, I'm sleeping right now. This is nap time. <laughs> <laughs> Auto response. Thank you so much, up.
2: Really profound. I never thought about that before. I found that
3: quite funny. I always learn something from you.
4: I don't know. Okay.